0: Good morning, church. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter eleven. Um, we're starting a new chapter, which is always kind of fun. John chapter eleven, starting in verse one, says, "Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, and wiped her uh, excuse me wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick." Therefore the sisters went to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go, that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask for faith. These are spiritual things that are spiritually discerned, spiritually understood, and we want to receive them spiritually uh, from your heart to ours. We pray for faith uh, like Thomas has here, Um, this desire to follow you even to the death. Lord, we ask for uh, the kind of faith that can trust a good shepherd and where we can follow you and trust you even in your timing when it's slower than we'd like it or quicker than we'd like it. Uh, we ask for faith to to believe in the God who knows best. So give us understanding of these things. Uh, edify your church. Uh, uh, build up your children um, as we receive this word. We ask this for your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're about halfway through the Gospel of John, but we're actually coming to the end of the story. Uh, as you guys probably know... Um, most of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, concerns the last week of Jesus' life. More time, I should say, is given to the last seven days of Jesus' life leading up to the the crucifixion and the resurrection um, than is given to any other time in his life. And so this chapter, chapter 11, is the last event recorded in John prior to Christ's Passion Week, the final week. And this priority that the gospel writers place on that final week makes sense to us, uh, those of us who have read the New Testament. We've read 1 Corinthians 15, kind of the gospel chapter uh, in all of Paul's writings, where he says that this gospel that he delivered that was entrusted to him is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the main point. Um, and it is, it is the death of Christ and then the resurrection of Christ that Christ sought to accomplish—that's the kind of language that he uses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we we've told uh, stories about, um, or we've read through the the story of Jesus healing people and and serving people and loving people and then preaching to people and then correcting to people and all that is important. All that is inspired Scripture, of course. But without the cross and the and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, none of those things are gospel. And so. We're looking at Lazarus' resurrection for the next couple of weeks. And this story of resurrection is our bridge from the ministry of Jesus towards people in Israel uh, to um, how he, his real ministry of raising the dead, of giving new life, of defeating sin and death, and then offering eternal life uh, through his resurrection. So now Lazarus' Re, Lazarus's resurrection is is surprisingly a story that is only included in the Gospel of John. And it is the seventh sign that John the Apostle has included. Now, that's not a comprehensive list of the miracles that Jesus did. He even says at the end of the book, if, we, if I wrote everything he did, it would, uh, it would fill all the libraries in the world. But uh, he included seven signs intentionally, and we started in John chapter 2 with Jesus turning water to wine. And then uh, later on, there was the healing of the nobleman's son. And then in chapter 5, there was the healing of the the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. And then there was the feeding the 5,000, and in the same chapter, walking on water. Then in chapter 9, we saw the man born blind was healed. And that was the sixth sign that John includes. And then now here we have resurrection. The resurrection of Lazarus as the seventh and final sign that Jesus accomplishes to point out his own divinity and his sufficiency, his ability, his power to save. Not just heal, uh, not just uh, master the elements in in walking on water or multiplying loaves and fishes, but Christ declares himself to have power over death itself. Now in the first sign mentioned in John, in John chapter 2, Uh, when Jesus' mother Mary comes to him and says, they're out of wine, he says, what does that have to do with me? My hour or my time hasn't come yet. And now we're at, we're seven signs in, and it's closer to his hour, his time. Uh, It's closer to the death that he is going to accomplish. So that's where we're headed. Um, We're moving out of of the the time of Jesus' preaching ministry, and now we're moving towards... Uh, his his ministry of defeating death. So, uh, let's set the scene here. Back in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, you'll remember if you were with us, if you watched last week's sermon, that Jesus uh, left town. He had been in Jerusalem for quite a while, uh, but because of a... a disagreement that he had with some of the residents there, he went across the Jordan. That's what chapter 10, verse 40 says. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And then many people believed in him there. And so there's kind of an awakening happening uh, where Jesus is is uh, really harvesting the things that John the Baptist had planted there in his ministry of calling people to repentance. Um, and the reason why he went there uh, was Ultimately, for the souls of these people, we know that Christ pursues his sheep. That's something we've been talking about. The disciples would have seen that he went there to avoid getting killed. Uh, and that's another good reason to leave town. Um, they, the, the Jews in in Jerusalem had picked up stones to throw at him. He heads out and now he's doing ministry here uh, a, a little ways away from Jerusalem. Now, Israel isn't very big, so it's not really far away. Uh, but it it's... Um, you know, a a good uh, couple days walk, a day or or two of a long walk uh, away from Jerusalem where he is across the Jordan. Um, And it's safe. No one's trying to kill him right there. And then while he's there ministering, while people are believing in him, and there is a, um, there's kind of a revival happening in in the midst of that really good day, and he hasn't had that many in Jerusalem lately. In the midst of that good day, he gets some bad news, and that's where chapter 11 begins with a certain man who was sick, Lazarus, of the town of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Verse 3. Therefore the sisters went to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Okay, so here's some characters that uh, we know and love. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are Jesus' best friends outside of the twelve, maybe even including the twelve. Um, these three, uh, the two sisters and their brother, these three are mentioned three times in Scripture. Jesus would often visit their home. Uh, it's very likely, actually, that Jesus would stay at their house for the, the feasts that were required for all Jewish men to celebrate each year. Um, it was common for you to kind of have, you know, your friends or your family that lives near Jerusalem. Bethany is only two miles outside of Jerusalem, tops, um, where you would stay for these uh, these pilgrimage feasts. And so Jesus would stay there probably f- very frequently, but we have three mentions in Scripture of Jesus being in their home. One is with the, the story that you're familiar with, I'm sure, of Mary and Martha, um, where Martha shows her love through serving and Mary does through listening. And at that time, one was better. And, and we're familiar with that story. And Jesus loves them both, and he ministers to both of them. But that, in that time, Jesus was teaching in their home, in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's home. Uh, another time we see him at, at their home is when uh, Mary anoints the feet of the Lord Jesus with this very expensive perfume, probably her dowry that she was saving, Um, She was putting all of her hopes and dreams and aspirations onto the person of Christ in worship. And he says, wherever the gospel is preached, they're going to tell this woman's story. So I'm telling it to you now. And then finally, the third time uh, we see Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or Jesus at their home, is later on in chapter 11 here, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. These are his friends. And just the fact that Jesus has friends, real friends... Human friends is a testament to his humanity. You know, John is all about showing the, the divinity of Christ. I mean, that's the way the gospel begins, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and throughout John, we have references of, of Christ's divinity. The signs that he includes are specifically geared towards pointing out that this is God, this is the Son of God. But we also see in John very, very specifically and very clearly that Christ was and is a man. And his friendship, the way he interacts with his friends, shows that humanity. You know, when when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word took on all there is to humanity. And humans have friends. Um, and, you know, we see in this chapter, the we see the divinity and the humanity of Christ really together together. Um, and we see the divinity of Christ and his, his power to raise the dead, of course. But we see a humanity that we can recognize and, and um, be familiar with even when we see that this is the chapter where we read Jesus wept. You know, friendship includes mourning and weeping and uh, maybe frustration and having to explain things that you didn't wish you had to explain. We see that with the disciples you know, as John emphasizes his divinity throughout the gospel, we see in this chapter a real clear picture of the humanity of Christ. Christ has friends. Jesus had friends and he loves people. And and I'd like to point out that he loves all different kinds of people. Uh, Mary and Martha are very different from one another. I mean, when, when we see them uh, in the, the story I, I already mentioned, you know, they're very different ones uh, a Sit still and listen kind of person that can put the chores off and doesn't really see the need to wash the dishes right now because we have friends over and Her sister Martha's not like that and the way they interact with Christ in this chapter that we'll see next week They're they're not like one another now the fact that Lazarus we don't know that much about in this chapter We know that he's dead Uh, but Lazarus was neither in the kitchen nor at the feet of Jesus uh, when when that famous story happened, and Jesus loves him too. He loves all of these people. These are his friends. And so when uh, the messenger sent by the sisters comes and says, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick, This this isn't like other people who came to Christ and said, Please heal my my friend, my daughter, my son, um, my servant. Please heal them because you just have to come and you have to do this thing for me and you have to heal them. You don't know them and you don't know me, but you have something that I want and I'm going to beg. Now, Christ honors that. He heals. When people come out of the blue, strangers, and say, come heal this person that you don't know, Jesus cares about them too and and loves them and, and heals them. But this is different. This person says, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. It's not so much a plea to solve the problem now. It's informing Jesus that something, you know, of, of something that he would care deeply about. It's telling Jesus, "You're going to want to know this," and I don't want you to hear it, hear about it secondhand. You should be one of the first people to know, um, Lazarus. You know, your best friend, one of your best friends. He's not doing well. He's really sick, and I. I know that you're going to do what's best and you, you've got a busy ministry. Um, I also know you have, you have power and you know, when you pray, things happen. But you should know this. Your friend is sick. And that's sort of the tone that I'm seeing here at the beginning of John chapter 11. And it mentions in, chapter, in verse 3 and then again in verse 5 and then again in verse 36, which we'll see again, that it emphasizes Jesus loved Lazarus says he whom you love is sick verse 3 in verse 5 now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus in verse 36 after Jesus wept it says then the Jews said see how he loved him it was very evident to everyone John mentions it three times emphatically that Jesus just loved this person and that's very John like of course you know, it, it's John who refers to himself, sort of in code, as the beloved disciple. It's John that um, is even physically affectionate to Jesus. He leans up against him at the Last Supper. Um, it's John who writes to the church, little children. That's kind of uh, affectionate in, in term in terminology. You know, little children love one another. He knew that he was loved and he saw that love was worth mentioning. Church history, church tradition really tells us that John, um, when he was the last surviving apostle or eyewitness of the resurrection, well into his 90s, after he'd been brought back from Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation, he'd be carried into uh, into the church congregation in Ephesus and uh, he, you know, couldn't walk, probably couldn't see, probably couldn't hear very well anymore and they carry him in and a hush would fall over the crowd and they would wait for the wisdom of this man who had seen and, and touched and heard Jesus. And the only thing John would say is, love one another. So he, he, he deeply cared for this, but he had eyes to see it. And he, he cared enough to write it into his gospel. Jesus loved this man. He loved it. And, and John, who had received so much love, knew love uh, you know, when he, when he saw it, and found it worth mentioning and worth celebrating. Um, you know, the, the, the love of God, the the friendship of Christ, these are beautiful things that John puts an emphasis on here, and then in the Upper Room Discourse, which we'll read um, You know, a few weeks, it's a beautiful passage full of red letters, and then in his letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you see that John just emphasizes this, this wondrous love of God. But, the way he describes this love of God, and especially in this story, we see that the friendship of Jesus defies expectations. Uh, The love of God is beyond us, not only in capacity, um, but it's beyond our understanding of how it works. And if you look at this story in just the 16 verses that we read even, what you see is that Jesus, who deeply loved Lazarus, let Lazarus die. You know, Jesus, who deeply loved Mary and deeply loved Martha, these people are close to his heart, and he let their brother die. Is that friendship... (laughs) Is that the friendship that that we see here? Yeah, it is. Is that the love of God? Yes, sometimes it is. And I think one of the reasons why John mentions in this chapter this deep love that Jesus has for this family is to show that his testing and growing and, and um, really putting pressure on Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that's not in contrast to his love. Jesus puts them in this furnace to test them and and to melt them and to pull off the dross and to clean them. And, And that's not because he doesn't love them. Jesus loves them and therefore allows them to go through the valley of the shadow of death. The author of Hebrews says, every son whom he receives, he chastens. And, and the author of Hebrews, this isn't punishment for Mary, and Martha, and Lazarus, but it, it does show that the things that we, we experience as unpleasant, that we would be asking deliverance from, may be evidence of God's love for us because he is pushing us through this furnace to purify us. And he, he allows us to go through these uncomfortable, painful, tragic circumstances because he knows that when we go through trusting in him, he is glorified. And on the other side, what people notice of the situation is that God is good and God is great and his mercy endures forever. But we, we see this human friendship, but, but it's, it's beyond what we can understand. You know, John, excuse me, Jesus he loves divinely well. His friendships, yes, they're human, but the extent of his love is divine. The wisdom of his friendship is perfect. And that is that is beyond us. But we see in verse, uh, verse 3, the message is, the one whom you love is sick. And Jesus has a response to this, and I believe this is something, obviously, it's, it's God talking here, and he is speaking with divine wisdom in what he's about to say. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, he, this is something Jesus knows through divine means, and through divine wisdom, he says this sickness is not unto death. And what the disciples heard, and what the messenger that the sisters sent heard, and what you would probably hear uh, if you, you know, didn't read the rest of the story, is you would say, oh, well, he's sick, but the sickness isn't going to kill him. The sickness isn't unto death. That's what everyone understood him to mean. But this is what... This means, the word unto, he's using it in a way that that, uh, determines purpose. And the purpose of this sickness was not to kill Lazarus. The purpose of this sickness was to glorify God. Now, I prayed at the beginning that God would give us faith. And if we're going to take verse 4 for what Jesus intends it, for all that it's worth, we need faith to believe that God is King and Lord over tragedies and sicknesses and uh, uncomfortable things and heartbreaking things because he sees the end that is beyond the end that we see. He says that this sickness is not Unto death the end goal of the sickness isn't death because this sickness had a Purpose that was beyond Death it was beyond death death would happen Lazarus would die and Jesus knows this before he gets word from any messenger that he died He knew in his spirit through divine means again that Lazarus was dead that, that he had died but he also knows through divine means that death is inconvenient it's an inconvenient but necessary stop along the way and when the disciples hear that he's died they they would have thought of verse 4 and said but you said the sickness wasn't into death but then uh, ultimately they could understand hopefully what he meant by it it would be like if if uh you know, I, I got in the car and, and I'm all ready to go on a road trip or something, and someone says, "Well, where where are you going?" And I'd say, "Well, I'm going I'm going to the gas station." Now I'm on my way to you know Montana, but but the gas station is uh, and they call them convenience stores, an inconvenient but necessary stop on the way. But is it the end? Is it the purpose? Is this road trip unto the gas station? Or is it unto the goal? Where you're actually headed? What's the purpose? And and don't talk about, you know, the journey being more than the destination. That's not that's not true. If Paul <laughs> This is a sidebar, isn't it? Paul says if the journey were more important than the destination, we Christians would be pitiable more than any other human beings that have ever lived. That's a paraphrase, of course, but of course it's about the destination. Of course the, the terminus, the end goal matters, the ultimate end. And Jesus says that this sickness that Lazarus is experiencing has an end. It has a purpose. There's a destination. And death might be the gas station on the way, on the road trip. It's necessary but inconvenient. But it's not the purpose. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. Death is not the purpose of living. It's not it's not the the final destination. Uh you think of of J- uh, James, I almost said Job, but it's James talking about Job. In the book of James, James is encouraging people to persevere and he says, "Consider Job." Um or you remember Job, he says, "You've seen the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended By the Lord. That end that is intended is kind of that that idea behind this word unto. This sickness is not unto death. The end intended by the Lord was not that Job would just have a really bad year. That wasn't the end intended by the Lord, that was the gas station on the way. The end intended by the Lord is that the Lord is compassionate, the end was the glory of God. The purpose was the glory of God. and uh, the Westminster Catechism, um, it, the, the first question, or at least the, the most uh, quoted question, is what is the chief end of man? Now, we know what that question means when it's a- asked. You know, the end of man, uh, a humanist or a materialist would say, well, the end of man is, is death. I mean, because we live, and then we stop living, and that's the, that's the end of man. That's a very literal reading of the question, and it's a very short-term view of existence. We know that when the question is asked, what is the chief end of man, we're talking about what is the ultimate purpose of man? What is the reason for existence? Now, the answer to that question that the Westminster Catechism gives, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The end of man is glory, to glorify God. For, for Lazarus, the end, the purpose, the reason for his suffering and even his death, the reason is the same. It's that God would be glorified. The chief end of man is glory. The end of this sickness, the purpose of this sickness was glory. And you, again, we need faith to understand this, but it's only through the faith that is necessary for this kind of understanding that we can understand other passages too. You think of Psalm 116. In Psalm 116, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And you're thinking, death isn't, Death isn't precious. Only if you see it as the end. (laughs) But if you see it as a doorway, if you see death then as an avenue towards glory, you can see why God would say something like that in Psalm 116. The end is glory. Now in verse uh, 6, we'll we'll read verse 5 again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, this is kind of hard for us to grapple with sometimes. There's no hurry. There's no hurry here. And it even says, because he loved him, he waited. And we don't get that. um, Because we, we don't like to admit this, but we still have that kind of manipulative, childish view of love when it comes to God, where there's a part of you that says, well, if you loved me, then you'd give me exactly what I want when I want it. When we, we know in our deeper sanctified spirit, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, we know that we ought to be saying, thank you, God, for not giving me the things that I want. But here it says, because he loved him, well, um, it says, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place. He, he's not in a hurry. And you know, it's interesting because, I don't know how much you can read it into this, but you never see Jesus hurry. Ever. You never see Jesus hurry from the, the nativity through to the ascension. He's not in a hurry. The only time you could say that you see God in a rush is in the parable of the prodigal son. Where the father of the prodigal son hikes up his robes and runs out to meet the prodigal. I would say that's the only time you could say that God is in a hurry. He is in a hurry to save. He's in a hurry to pursue the lost sheep. He rushes towards the repentant sinner. Uh, he, he sprints towards that child that was lost but is coming back. But other than that, we see Jesus take his time. And, and honestly, this wouldn't have seemed strange because the disciples had just heard him say, well, Lazarus isn't going to die. And... The disciples knew from earlier on that they had left Jerusalem, which is right near the town of Bethany, because there are people trying to kill Jesus. So when Jesus waits a couple days, you know, don't picture the disciples tapping their feet, wondering, when are we going to go to Lazarus? He's our friend. They're thinking, it's fine. Jesus said he's going to get better. I believe he's going to get better, and there's no way I want to go back to Jerusalem uh, because no one likes me there. Um, So it would have been safe, it would have been sensible. But we see the whole story and even with the context of the whole the whole chapter we we wonder why? Why did you wait? Why didn't you go then and heal him and and Mary and Martha? You know they they couldn't leave his his side. They sent a messenger there They're watching him decline and get weaker and weaker and weaker. They're looking at death and they would think why? did he wait? Later in the chapter, they they tell him, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. So you know they're thinking, why did you wait? We sent you a messenger in time. Why would you wait? Well, verse 14, which we read, verse 14 and 15 gives us a clue. He says, "Jesus, uh, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe wow, that gives us a clue. Now, how, let's be honest with ourselves, how do we feel about that? I mean, uh, not even including, you know, the microwave culture that we exist in, that wants things now, 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 now. Um, But to see that Jesus waited, knowing that, knowing that the longer he waited, the more suffering happened. How, How do we feel about that? We don't love it which is why we need faith. Because we can see that Jesus knows best. And, and we can see that he waits so that he can be more glorified. We see that he withholds the blessing that we would beg for because he's got a greater blessing in store. And we can believe that, but we know to hold on to that, we need, we need faith. We need faith. Jesus waits Mary and Martha surely wouldn't have loved it. And if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we wouldn't have either. But then after two days, verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and are you going there again? They don't want to go back to Jerusalem. You know, they got to go through Jerusalem back on their way to, to Bethany. Probably they're thinking, no, I don't want to see those people. They're thinking, safety first, Jesus, which is not really a way that anyone lives their life. Um, It's not a good way to live. There's lots of things better than safety to pursue, but Jerusalem is not safe. It's not safe. You know, three times now have have, uh, orthodox, very religious Jewish people tried to kill Jesus, once in his hometown and twice in Jerusalem, and that's just what we know of. You know, it's probably just, you know, a week before, or not that long, Long ago, when people had picked up stones, they had the stones in their hands to throw at Jesus. And then he escaped, he left, and the disciples are saying, Do you really want to go back to that? I don't think that's a great idea. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to him, said to them, "Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up." You have the light, darkness, sleep, waking kind of uh, uh, metaphors showing up here in the same passage. Now, in uh, this reminds you, this should remind you of something that we've heard Jesus say very recently um, in chapter nine when the disciples encounter this man born blind and they ask their question, which turns out to be actually a stupid question. Yes, there is such a thing. Um, And they they see the man blind from birth and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now I say it's a stupid question because they said he was born blind and they're also suggesting that it was because of his sin that he did before he was born. Anyway, we talked about that in chapter 9. But Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he says, this is a time to work. You see something dark and depressing and maybe sin stained. And I see something that I need to do. And while I'm here, It's time to work. I am the light of the world. Now, here in John chapter 11, which I'm going to turn back to, they say, do you really want to go to that dangerous place, that risky place? And Jesus answers kind of the same thing. And he says, it's daytime. It's still light. And as long as I'm here, it's time to work. Now, in chapter 10, Jesus was almost killed, and then he left, And he went over to the Jordan and did ministry there. And what that looks like to us, what that looks like to the disciples is Jesus removed himself from a very risky situation and went to a safe place for a little bit of self-care and some, you know, some me time. Uh, That's not what was going on. Jesus removed himself from hard-hearted people that were unwilling to accept his words. And he went towards soft-hearted people that were hungry and thirsty for his words. He's been working the whole time. And so the disciples say, wait, you don't want to go do something unsafe again. And he says, no, it's still light. I've been working the whole time. I didn't leave because of my safety. I went where the work needed to be done. The question is, well, Jesus, what if it's dangerous? And he says, it's still light. It's still time to work. In other words, it's it's not my time to die. It's my time to work. And as long as I'm here, I'm working. This is how spirit-filled people work. You talk to people who have it in their minds that they are commissioned by Christ to do his will. And and these people, these spirit-filled people, will constantly, constantly be interrogated by well-meaning people, believers and otherwise, saying, well, are you sure you want to do that? It might not be safe. Oh, you beloved missionaries that have to answer those kinds of questions. Uh... The spirit filled person says, It's day, isn't it? It's light, isn't it? Jesus says, As long as I'm here, I'm the light of the world. And here he says, The one who walks in the light, you know, he doesn't, um, or sorry, the one who walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In him. To walk in the light is to have the light in you. Now Jesus is there and he's the light of the world, but now he has sent his spirit into our hearts so that we walk in the light as we are led by the spirit of God. Um, This this looks a whole lot like, um, well, a lot of missionaries, but one in particular named Paul. Uh, And Paul in, in the city of Lystra, in Acts 14, it's a pretty remarkable story, he and Uh, his friend Barnabas, they go there and they preach, and people think that is the best preaching I've ever heard. I bet you're a Greek god. So they think Barnabas is Zeus, they think Paul is um, Hermes, the messenger, and they're like, oh, we're going to sacrifice a bull to you, it's going to be great. And the missionaries, Christian missionaries say, no, stop, put a hold on this, we are not gods, no, 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 we're declaring to you one true god, and all these gods that you're worshipping are actually fake. And so they shift gears really fast and the same people that thought he was a god take Paul out of the city and then throw rocks at him until he stops moving. They leave him for dead outside the city. And then the believers that were in the city come out to him and they get him up and where does he go? He goes back into the city of Lystra. That is not a safe place to go. But Paul had this idea that it was still day and it's time to work. And that's how he lived. That's how he lived until he was called home, until it was his time. Jesus says, it's not my time. It's still time to work. I don't mind going to the risky place. Let's go. And he explains that walking in darkness is walking without light in you, without the Holy Spirit's guidance. We should desire, and we do desire to walk in the light and what, that, what I mean by that is to walk in a way where God's Spirit in us is leading us through the decisions that we make. If God is in us, if God is with us, who can be against us? Um, you know, we, we've got work to do. Uh, and what we see in, in this story and other places in Christ's ministry is that work is where the needs are. You know, work is where the hungry people are and where the thirsty people are. And we have to know that risk is also where the needs are, always. And that's where Jesus goes. And the disciples are the well-meaning people questioning, isn't that, that's not safe. And Jesus says, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to do the work. Work is where the needs are. Risk is where the needs are. Verse 11, uh, which we already read. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. You sleep when it's dark, but you wake up in the light. So he, the light of the world, is going to go, Pull the curtains up and wake him up. Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Um, Death and sleep is a a metaphor, a a turn of phrase that is is well established in scripture. Uh, You think of when Jesus went to heal the daughter of the the, um, ruler of the synagogue and And he arrives and they say, no, send the teacher away. She's already dead. And Jesus says, no, no, no. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And they laugh at him. And then he goes and raises her up from the dead. Talitha kumi. And uh, Matthew 27, verse 52, after the the crucifixion, it says many souls, or sorry, many saints who had fallen asleep um, were raised and came out of the graves. So it talked about death in terms of falling asleep. Uh, the Corinthians, and their problem with communion. Paul says, you know, you took this in an unworthy manner, and that's why many of you sleep. He wasn't talking about sleeping in church. He was talking about being dead. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, concerning those who have fallen asleep, I do not want you to be ignorant. And he's talking about Christians who had died. So that's an established phrase. So Jesus isn't really speaking in code right here, but the disciples are taking things literally because that was sort of a, a way to understand things then. And he says, our friend sleeps, I need to wake him up. And they're like, oh, he's just taking a nap. And Jesus says, no, 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 listen closely when I'm talking. He's dead. (laughs) But why would Jesus use the euphemism, even if it was established? Why would he not say, Lazarus is dead and I go to raise him? Well, first of all, that's a really bold thing to say, because there's not really a precedent for someone going and just raising people up from the dead whenever they want to. Um, So that's one reason. But why do we have euphemisms... Like this at all. Well, usually, uh, it's to soft, soften a harsh reality. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't tell the kid that the dog died. You say that he went to the farm. Uh, you have strange little phrases that don't make any sense, like he kicked the bucket. I'm going to look that up after this and find out why we say that means death. But we have euphemism, euphemisms to describe things in order to soften the harsh reality. Now it's interesting because Jesus is actually going to remove the, the harshness. He is going to remove the potential from harm from death itself. Not just uh, the emotional, you know, uh, the the emotional consequence of saying, "Oh, he died," and how that's not sensitive. He is going to remove the sting of death. You know, we, we read in 1 Corinthians that death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? You know, euphemisms are there to remove the sting. And so Jesus says, death is just sleeping. And he is revealing it to be stingless. And and what is he communicating when he calls death sleep? He's saying that death isn't permanent. Death is uh, temporary. Uh, A lot of people, I don't understand them, but a lot of people view sleep as an inconvenience that they wish they could just skip because they'd get so much done. Once again, I don't understand these people. But you see, the death, uh, death now being uh, equated to sleep, is just seen as a, as a temporary uh, inconvenience that isn't life-threatening. If you can believe it, death isn't the end. Death isn't the purpose. Death isn't life-threatening. Verse fourteen. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless. Let us go to him. Mm. It's kind of surprising to read in verse 15 that Jesus was glad. He says, I am glad. And now in verse 35, we have the famous short verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus's emotions don't always match ours, and we need to be okay with that. Remember Psalm 116? Precious in the sight of the Lord the death of his saints? Do we usually see death of saints as precious? No, we don't. Jesus says, I am glad for your sakes. Now, were the disciples glad when they realized Lazarus was dead? No, Lazarus was their friend too. Were Mary and Martha glad? That's not what we read in this chapter. Was Lazarus happy that he had to go through this, that he had to get sick and die? No. No one was glad about this. And Jesus says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Because Jesus knew that it's better this way. He experienced and suffered the pain of this death as well. But he could still say, I'm glad because I know the end. The, the end is glory. We need faith to receive this. Pray for faith. And we we, we look at this and say, we, we read that he says, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there that you may believe. And we think like, how can you how can you be glad about this? It's because he knows the end and that it's glory, that they would believe in glory, that their faith would be galvanized and strengthened. So Romans 8 verse 18, Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul got it. He understood it. He says this, this temporary thing, which includes torture and death, it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory. And if I set my mind on the glory that's ahead, then yeah, I, c- I can even be glad that such faith is co- is going to be perfected when such glory is revealed. We'll see face to face. We will know even as we also are known. There's a, um, a quote by uh, Pastor Tim Keller. He says, um, i got to get this right. He says, God only gives us the things that we would ask for if we knew what He knows. Now that's a lot. God only gives us the things that we would ask for if we knew everything that He knows. If we knew how great the glory of God is in resurrection, if we knew the glory that we will one day be able to behold in heaven that will just make all this other stuff fade away. we, We would know exactly what to ask for. We need to believe that. That's hard, but we need faith to believe that. Believe in a God who can wait, who can say it's better this way. It's not your way. My ways are higher than your ways, but it's better this way. We need to have faith to believe in a God who sees the glorious end and knows how to get you there, even if it's through death. Now, what did the disciples observe here? They observed courage. Uh, Jesus said, I know it's dangerous, and I'm going anyway. Uh, they pro- That's maybe the most they understood, I'm not sure. But Thomas sees this, he hears this, he hears Jesus say, it's time to work. I know it's risky, but it's time to work, and I'm going. I'm going towards death. And Thomas begins to understand this and he's inspired. In verse 16 says, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas the twin. We don't know who his twin brother uh was. Obviously he was a a twin, because he called... Oh, Thomas, the guy that looks like his brother. Um but we don't know who his, his twin is. He's probably not one of the twelve. So rough family life there perhaps, believe, believing family. Um but it's nice that Thomas is a twin. Uh, Because every believer since him has resembled him in a fashion much like a twin. Um, Especially in his doubting. But here we don't see doubting Thomas, do we? We see a Thomas whose spirit is willing. Now we know from Gethsemane that the spirit is willing in the flesh is weak. Peter will say, I'll never deny you. And then he does. And, and Thomas says, let's go die with him. But when the shepherd is struck, the sheep scattered. And then afterwards they say, Jesus is back. And he says, I won't believe it. Uh, <laughs> I won't believe it until I, I I, touch the wounds and put my hand in his side. But you know what? Jesus loved him through that. He loved Peter through Gethsemane and the denials and and uh, all the doubt. Jesus loved divinely well. Jesus loved his friends Infinitely, perfectly. Jesus treats his friends how? And you know, if we just take the fact that well, Jesus let him die. Jesus didn't answer the women's prayers, Mary and Martha. Jesus waited. How could he? You see, Jesus treats his friends like this, and we we could, you know, froth up in in righteous indignation. But we have to see. Maybe the better question is: Look how Jesus treats his enemies. We see, Jesus treats his friends like this, and it looks hard. Yeah, you know, but look how Jesus treats those who are in darkness, those who doubted him, those who denied him, those who said in one moment, oh, I'll I'll die with him, but in the next, you know, they see him weak, and they, they flee for their lives. How does Jesus treat those people? He calls them to himself. He calls them out of the grave to himself. And I think... Thomas is beginning to understand this power that Christ has to call and to save and to welcome and to befriend. And Thomas sees the kind of love that Christ has for his friends. And he says, this is something that's really worth dying for. And he's right. And he says, this is something, this is someone that I would rather follow and then die in the process then leave and live forever. Thomas is beginning to understand that. And before the chapter is done, I think he'll understand it even more fully. And I pray that we will as well. Let's pray. Again, Christ, we need faith. We ask for faith. We pray that you would strengthen us in the inner man, that we would be able to trust you completely with how you order the events of our life and it won't be the way we ask for always and we, we give you thanks and we give you praise for not giving us all the things that we want and instead giving us things that you know are best for us and that will result in the most glory for you. God, we pray that you would draw forth from our lives, from our church, praise for your name. And we pray that you would awaken in our hearts a desire for that glory, for that praise, that your glory would be the thing most important to us, more than safety, more than um, uh, immediate comfort, more than healing, uh, more than life itself. Increase our faith, Lord Jesus. Amen.